Come join LCMS Worship for the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th, 2024, at Concordia University, Nebraska. We'll gather under the theme, The Songs of Deliverance, and focus on the Psalms together. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. The hymn, Son of God, Eternal Savior. Many of us will be singing that as the hymn of the day for the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany, according to the three-year lectionary. These words, word made flesh, whose birth among us hallows all our human race. That's what Epiphany is really all about. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live this Monday afternoon, January the 22nd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to spend some time looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, with Pastor Sean Denzer. He is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Then we'll have a conversation on the stockpiling of abortion pills with Dr. Lloyd Holm. He's a retired OBGYN and former president of the Iowa State Board of Health. We'll round it all off today talking about Christians, gay friends, and same-sex weddings with Pastor Brian Barlow. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Good to be back, Todd. So, Sean, you say there's an Old Testament epiphany connection in the propers for today. What is that? Absolutely. And we've talked about this quite a bit over the past year, really two years. And that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy about a prophet like him that will arise from the midst. Well, we finally get to hear that Old Testament reading today, and it's going to pair up really well with our gospel reading where we have yet another epiphany of Jesus continuing in the gospel of Mark and how he is recognized as one who speaks and teaches with authority, not just calling on somebody else, not just explaining Moses endlessly or explaining the explainers of Moses, but actually as one who speaks authoritatively from God, who is a prophet, who is being revealed. Moses' prophecy also was about how all the people are going to have to listen to this prophet who arises after him, how God will require it of anybody who doesn't listen to his words. And I think we'll see that in today's gospel, how the people are ready to listen at the very least, and perhaps already are listening and believing in Jesus as he's revealed to them. What are some, as you say, disconnected themes? This Sunday doesn't come together in gel quite as well as a few, uh, many of the others do. I think there are ways to find connections between the propers, and maybe it's helpful then to just remember that the scriptures are rich in their depth. This is what we love about them. They don't get old if, if we ever find ourselves bored with God's word. It is something that we are bored. We're the source of that problem because the scriptures are rich and nuanced and full of connections that 
I mean, it takes a whole lifetime to see. So you'll see that there's different ways to take this gospel, I suppose. And I think it really is reflected in our proper. So for example, the collect and the introit, they're going to push us towards a rescue that Jesus is bringing to us, even towards forgiveness of sins being the heart and center of that rescue that he gives to us. But that's not something that the gospel itself is focused so incredibly on. It's speaking about a casting out of a demon and the people recognizing in that action a teaching that comes with the authority of God's own finger. The epistle, as always, we expect it to go wherever our epistle continuous reading goes. This one actually does seem to have at least a small connection. It's going to speak about how this question of whether there really are other gods and idols and lords, or whether, as we know, our Lord is the only true God and uh, all of the other gods are false. But Paul himself says that those who are participants with false idols and false gods are in truth participants with demons. And we're going to be seeing demons today. They're going to come out and challenge Jesus. In fact, they're going to acknowledge him to be the Holy One of God, and Jesus is going to tell them to be silent and cast them out. That's the authority that his teaching comes with. So we'll have a little connection with that, considering that our epistle is the very one where Paul talks about to eat at the table of pagan gods uh, is actually to have participation with demons. And our Lord has come to rescue us from that very thing. Lastly, what is very connected is that we'll get to see the prophet and the Messiah of Israel revealed in the very midst of pagan Gentiles. And as we look at the gospel reading, that's exactly what's going on. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's in the region of Galilee, a place where not only Jews live, but also Gentiles, as we've talked about in previous weeks. This is the Galilee of the Gentiles that Isaiah foretold and spoke about. So in a sense, our hearing of the gospel reading today is also in that setting. We're going to hear the the Gentiles around us in 1 Corinthians, our epistle. We know that we're in the season of Epiphany where we're thinking about the message to the nations, our gradual that continues to call upon all nations to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Therefore, all these propers are going to be the prayers of us Christians who know the Lord's mercy, calling out to those who have not yet acknowledged him, that they also would listen to this prophet that arises in the midst of his people. Take us into the intro, which is Psalm 32. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. But you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Just a portion of Psalm 32, we've skipped the part that might be quite familiar. After insisting that the blessedness of God is on the one whose transgressions and sins are forgiven. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord imputes and counts no iniquity, but instead imputes his righteousness through the forgiveness of sins, who no longer has a deceitful heart, a, a spirit within them that is two-faced, on the one hand being a sinner 
but at the same time trying to deny it or to hold up their own righteousness as sufficient before God, but rather to be absolutely honest that our sins are serious, that they are worth confessing, that the Lord, in fact, is wrathful against them, but then also to be just as honest and truthful to say amen to the Lord's word, that your sins are forgiven. You forgave the iniquity of my sins, something we say often at the beginning of our services. It's maybe difficult to find how this connects with our gospel today, so I'm going to kind of set that aside and just treat the psalm, because it is a marvelous psalm. Uh, We've skipped over the part where it speaks about what it is like to not confess our sins, to live in that duplicitousness of one who who is a sinner but is unwilling to come to grips with it and acknowledge it and, most of all, confess to the Lord and be truthful with him. But we focused in especially on the forgiveness of sins. I suppose if I were to connect this to the gospel, it would be most of all that it is by the forgiveness of sins that the Lord casts out all deceitful spirits, including our own lies to ourselves, these fruits of the devil's work in us, and at last brings us to be ones who would listen to him, above all to listen to the fact that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that he is full of forgiveness and ready to give it. What is so beautiful about the psalm is not only the beginning part, which teaches us against uh, the uh, instinct to bottle things up, to pretend and act as if we have a righteous life without God. It teaches us the value of forgiveness, that if you want to be known as a blessed one, if you want to be a saint of God, then treasure the forgiveness of sins, treasure the absolution, treasure the gospel, the message that Jesus has shed his blood for my forgiveness. In a sense, you could almost summarize this psalm, it's better to be forgiven than it is to pretend that you're not a sinner. Similar to what Jesus says, I love that one sinner who repents far more than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Therefore, there's an urgency to it. And I think this also connects to what Moses is about to say in our Old Testament and what we see Jesus doing as he preaches and speaks and and works among the people in the gospel, uh, that he is presenting himself to be received right now with an urgency. Offer prayer to him, come to him, believe in him, seek the Lord while he may be found, because there certainly are times when he no longer will be found, so we ought to seek him when he is in front of us. But something that's become really beloved to me is this last phrase in our intro, that he is a hiding place, that he preserves me from trouble, and that he surrounds me with shouts of deliverance. You see, it's not only that the Lord forgives us once or he calls us in really serious matters to repentance and get over it and move on as if that never happened again, but it's that he surrounds us with the constant story of the forgiveness of sins, with the constant retelling of the gospel, with the constant reminder that he has absolved us and that now we belong to him and in his sight are indeed righteous and holy for Christ's sake. This is, by the way, the theme of our Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music that will be held this summer in Seward, Nebraska, put on by LCMS Worship, a big conference for church musicians, for pastors, and we'll focus especially on the Psalter. But we've taken this as our theme, that he surrounds us with the songs of deliverance. And uh, if you're interested, registration is open. You can check that out at lcms.org slash worship institute. What is the collect? 
Almighty God, you know that we live in the midst of so many dangers that in our frailty we cannot stand upright. Grant strength and protection to support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations through Jesus Christ our Lord. So originally this collect was paired with the calming of the storm. I think you can think of all the dangers there and our frailty, the weakness of the disciples who are at wit's end and think that they're going to be destroyed even though Jesus is there in the boat with them. As we have it with today's gospel, I think it fits very well. Also, we're about to hear about a man who's demon-possessed, about how the demons seem to be in charge so much so that they know exactly who Jesus is, even before anybody else kind of has recognized that. That reminds us of our frailty. We consider our sins. We see how easily they trick us into holding on to our sins instead of confessing them and receiving the forgiveness of sins. That how in our weakness can we possibly stand against these things? Well, Christ has come not to be our condemner, uh, but to be the one who promises all good to us, who forgives our sins, whose words are life and who give healing and restoration, who can even cast away and put to flight all of the devil's attacks against us. Therefore, he's the right one to call to, whether it's in temptation or whether it's in any of the dangers that aren't our sin's direct results, but certainly are the evidence of sin and its far-reaching consequences in this world. Jesus Christ is capable of it. He's the one who gives us strength. He's the one who rescues us. That's what he's come to earth to do. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. When we come back, the Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 18. Stay tuned. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org slash conferences. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Leonard Payton of St. John Lutheran Church, Forest Park, Illinois. Forest Park being an inner ring suburb of Chicago. We're a mile and a half south of Concordia University, Chicago, and a 10-minute walk from a metro station and the ends of both the blue line and the green line. If work is moving you to Chicago, consider joining us. If you're visiting Chicago, come worship with us. It's a church for a great city and a great location. Our website is stjohnforestpark.org. 
Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. So, Sean, the Old Testament reading for this coming Sunday, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20. This is an extremely rich passage. It references not only something from the past, as Moses is speaking it, but also something to come, Christ, our gospel reading. Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from among your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So this is a prophecy concerning Christ. When Moses says that there will be another prophet that comes from among your brothers, this is an indication that this will be someone speaking the Lord's word that is a human, that is even a son of Israel. And that's certainly who Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary, but also that the Lord will put his own word in his mouth. So we see why this prophecy has kind of multiple touch points. One, it's the catalyst for Moses to explain the test and I guess the reality of the warning that is necessary, that there are indeed false prophets as well as true prophets. A true prophet will have the Lord's words in his mouth. He will stand in the counsel of the Lord first, and then will speak what God has for him to speak. It's always an external word in that way, rather than just somebody claiming that God has spoken through him. And there will be those who claim that, who are not given a word from God, and yet they go and speak, who are not even sent by God, and yet speak. And certainly those who speak in the name of other gods, that's a sure tell sign that he is not the Lord's own prophet. But the one who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. The one who comes speaking God's word, who is appealing back to the scriptures and to the Lord himself, this is a trustworthy one. and. Jesus is finally the one that we're pointed to for this. But by extension, then also the looking for the authority of God's word in everybody's preaching. Now, I want to jump back to the beginning of it when Moses just alludes to something in the past. He says, you desired something from God at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, when you were all assembled together and you said this phrase, don't let us hear the voice of the Lord our God or let us see this fire anymore lest we die. 
or lest I die, speaking singularly of Israel as a whole people. And the Lord said to me, Moses says, they're right. They're right when they said that. Remember back to Exodus 20. So big fire on the mountain. It's a terrible sight to behold. The Lord himself speaks with his voice. This is not yet his carving in letters of stone, but is speaking with his own voice in the presence of the whole people of Israel. These are the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse my name, etc., etc. And the response to hearing this is to say, Moses, we don't want God to talk anymore. Shut him up. Let us listen to you. You can be our intermediary. You will listen to Moses. But if we have to hear God talk like this anymore, we will die. And Moses tells them, don't be afraid. The Lord has given this word, this Ten Commandments, to test you so that you may not sin, so that you may be diagnosed, and so that the fear of the Lord may be in you. Now, we hear about this a couple other places in the scriptures here. We hear it somewhat referenced when the Lord is going to destroy the people of Israel and make a new nation out of Moses. And Moses does the noble, the Messiah thing, the the mediator role by standing in the breach and telling God, no, I want you to keep your promises for the sake of your people. I want you uh, not to give the Egyptians an upper hand on us. Don't make a new nation of me. Keep your promises to Israel. And the Lord relents, of course, miraculously. So also in Deuteronomy 5, this is when the Lord says to Moses, they're right to say that if I continue to speak to them according to the Ten Commandments, according to the law and expectations, they will definitely die. This is the way it is with the Lord's commands. They don't bring life, as Paul goes on and on about in Romans, because we are sinners. We are incapable of doing them, even though we might say, as Israel did on that very day, oh, sure, all these things will do. Yeah, no problem. No, it is a problem. Sinners do not keep this law, and thus this law condemns them. So yeah, if the Lord would speak like this forever, we would die. If it weren't for Moses standing in the breach as a mediator, then they would have been wiped out, and Moses would have been the source of a new nation. Paul also writes about this in 2 Corinthians when he talks about the glory of the ministry of the old covenant on letters of stone, the law, and the way in which Moses was never willing to bring it to its final outcome, that is, to bring it to the point where it slays people. But the Lord Jesus is a different sort of mediator. He preaches the law in full boldness, as we've heard uh, in other years in the lectionary, when he is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, that he preaches the law to such an extent that it condemns everyone. Likewise, he is the mediator that surpasses Moses, the one who stands in the breach with his own blood, giving his own life in order to redeem us, to forgive us, to save us. So this is remarkable that all of this is in play when Moses makes this fantastic sermon here in Deuteronomy, his second giving of the law right before he dies and does not enter into the promised land. And all of this is to point us that we should listen to this prophet that will arise, that we should listen to Jesus and receive his word. And I think that's a great foreshadowing, by the way, of the transfiguration, which some other parishes have just finished observing and which we will observe in just a few weeks in the three-year lectionary, where the Lord himself says, what, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The psalm for the coming Sunday, Psalm 111, you say it's kind of a summary of Exodus. 
Praise the Lord. I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He's shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Yes, uh, we always think of the psalm as being a comment on the Old Testament. I think this is a fine summary of Exodus. You can hear just little snippets of it theologically, that he keeps his covenant forever, that he actually is gracious and merciful. This is the phrase that the Lord himself utters as he passes by Moses on the mountain. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast mercy. His splendor and his majesty is at work. We, we see that on the mountain, the terrible fury of the Lord there on Mount Sinai, but also we see it at work, as it says here, in his righteousness that endures forever, or as a parallel with his steadfast love that endures forever, that he is faithful, that he continues to be with his people, and that he, in fact, will bring also the nations to join with them, find a prophecy of everything we've been looking at here in Epiphany season. Speaks also about his commandments. They are worth our attention, are worthy of study. That is to say, that's what a true prophet would do, but also what the prophet that comes like Moses, Jesus Christ, he'll be recognized by this, that he comes fulfilling the scriptures and teaching in accordance with them and that the Lord's name and presence are awesome. The final statement is, is kind of the summary. We've heard it in many other places in the Bible as well, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's quite a rich statement. It's not only that it's the fear and terror of the Lord, like uh, Israel had on Mount Sinai, but also the fear of the Lord, as we say, God-fearers, those who worship him, who are devoted to him, those who have faith in his promises as well. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We are looking forward to the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. The epistle reading is ahead, a continuous reading of 1 Corinthians. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we finish Titus with Devoted to Good Works and then move into Ruth with Intro to Ruth, Naomi Prepares to Return to Bethlehem, Ruth's Loyalty, and Call Me No More, Naomi. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Unforgiveness is a prison, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January will help you break out of the unforgiveness in your own life. It's titled, Unforgivable? How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. 
or learn more about Unforgivable at issuesetc.org. Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, with Pastor Sean Denzer. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, the epistle reading continues in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 8 now, the first 13 verses. All right, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are, and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, so the question, as Paul says, is about food offered to idols. And just briefly, while we maybe don't know all the details about life in pagan Corinth, it just seems very obvious that maybe even all the meat that is available for purchase, unless you kill your own animal that you raised, all of that meat has some kind of connection to the pagan temple. And maybe even it's eaten in the temple precincts. 
that it has some kind of connections to sacrifice to false gods and false idols. And Paul is saying this is incredibly troublesome, especially to those who formerly worshipped such idols, who are trying to be Christians now, who have heard the gospel and believed it, who want to set aside that former way of life. And now they still have to deal with the fact that every time they go for dinner, they may actually be put in a position where they need to eat this meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And that could really hurt a tender or a weak conscience. So Paul begins with this knowledge. It seems like he's quoting the Corinthians, maybe from one of their letters, that they've got knowledge. They know something. What do they know? They know that idols are fake. They know that there's only one God. In fact, Paul almost quotes that Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's something Jews know, just as maybe Gentile Christians are recognizing also. And what do we say about that? Of course it's true. There's only one God. There's only one creator of the world. The Lord is the true Lord, as certainly many examples in the Old Testament demonstrate. I think particularly of when the ark goes around in Philistia and Dagon, the God, topples over because what is an idol compared to the Lord? Or think about the prophets of Baal, right? He doesn't answer at all, whereas our God comes down like a consuming fire and responds quite visibly to everything. But what do you do about the fact? Paul actually admits here that there are so-called gods, and then he says, indeed, there really are many gods and lords. What's he doing here? Well, he's acknowledging the existence of plenty of competing claims. Obviously, a Christian knows the truth from the scriptures, but there are plenty of other religions, especially in the ancient world, who have their beliefs and their practices, and they have many gods, most of them. And so they call them gods. They believe them to be gods. What are we to do about the fact they have those devotions? They have that belief because they're devoted to them. They're devoted to these idols, whether those idols are worthy of their devotion or not. And that's the key part. In English, this is easy. Our word worship comes from the idea of ascribing worth. And you have that great psalm and other places in the scripture that talks about the folly of idols, that you cut down a tree, that you chop half of it up to make your firewood to cook your food, and you take the other half and you carve it and turn it into a god that you bow down to and worship. Well, you should see the, the foolishness of that just on its face. And yet it never stops people from worshiping idols, quite literally, in maybe the ancient world and other parts of our world today, but also metaphorically, as we're very familiar with from Luther's own explanation of the first commandment. We are to fear and to love and to trust in the true God above all things. And we find that we fear and we love and we trust in all sorts of things other than the true God. Now, maybe that's a God of a religion. Certainly a, a false believer would have that understanding. But it's just as true for us that we're tempted to trust our money. We're tempted to fear who's going to get elected or uh, who's attacking the United States of America and so on and so forth. This is just the recognition that faith makes the gods, as, as Luther said once. Faith and devotion cling to these and trust in them regardless of what the object is. When faith is placed in the true God, when his word and faithfulness is what inspires and elicits that faith out of us, it's a saving faith. When an idol gets us in its grasps that we trust in it, 
even if it's a metaphorical idol, it leads us into destruction. Paul also says lords here, and that's a kind of allegiance that extends even to this world. You might call Caesar lord, for example. That's especially poignant since how could there be more than one lord? How could there be more than one Yahweh? Of course there couldn't be. And to any Jews that are listening, that would be obvious. So Paul then runs with these two words, and he says, we have one God and we have one Lord. Our God is the Father himself. He's the maker of all things which is why worshiping idols is so silly, because he's the one who's created them. We should worship the creator, not the created things. And he says that we have one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this not to make a dichotomy between the two, but really to lump them together, to keep them as three persons in one God, even though the Spirit's not mentioned here, that our Lord is Jesus Christ, this basic confession of Christianity, Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is a way of also saying that Jesus is not only our king, so apologies to Caesar, but our Lord is Jesus. It's also to say he is the God of the Old Testament. He is the capital L-O-R-D, Lord as well. Now we come to the question of who is a weak person? How does Paul describe a person with a weak conscience? And the answer is the conscience that is weak in Paul's language, is the one that is hypersensitive, that actually has a desire to be pious. He's envisioning somebody who formerly was devoted to idols, who was a pagan, but now has become a Christian and yet still has a tender conscience about it. He remembers how he, in good faith, bad faith we would say, actually did offer food to those idols. He wants to be free of those ceremonies and those false worships. And yet he's afraid that he might either fall back into it or that he might be found not denying his former way of life. So Paul says that it's not right for us to use our reason as a rationale for convenience. It's concerned about confessing the truth, that it even goes to the point of maybe imposing unnecessary measures on it. So, for example, so afraid of uh, being found as a worshiper of false gods, since once I used to worship a false god, that I'm just going to steer clear of it all and be as careful as possible. Paul acknowledges that there's no physical or metaphysical significance to this meat, so you offered it to an idol. Your god is fake. Your worship is fake. This doesn't matter to us at all. But at the same time, he urges maybe the opposite course of action. He says, don't let that become a stumbling block to people who have those weak, you might even say overactive, hypersensitive consciences. The Corinthians that Paul's addressing seem to be proceeding with eating very boldly, right? Maybe they're doing it kind of as a way of saying, we don't believe in your gods anyway, so we're not going to be bothered by that. We're just going to do whatever we want. By appearances, if you were to gaze into the temple, the pagan temple that is, they would seem to be participating in the very same ceremonies as those pagans are. By knowledge, they're crossing their fingers, as it were, right? They're going through the motions, the same motions, indistinguishable to the eye as their neighbors are, but their hearts aren't in it. I think we could say that of the Corinthians. We don't think that they're actually worshipers of false gods. They're just eating the meat. But Paul has a view to the one who doesn't know all this, who's watching them, and to them it's indistinguishable whether they're actually joining in pagan sacrifices or just eating meat for the sake of nourishment. 
And they might react in one of two ways. They might say, well, Corinthian X really must not be a Christian since he's still a pagan. He's worshiping like a pagan there in the temple. That's scandalous. And he might even be a leader in my church. What do I do about that? Or you could have the other reaction to say, well, he's an upstanding leader in our Corinthian congregation and he's a good Christian. That means it must be okay to eat in the pagan temple. It must be okay to worship false gods too. I can worship God one day, the true God, Jesus, and I can worship the pagan gods on the other days, and that's all fine and good. He's doing it. I think I'll do it too, and maybe not even be doing it with crossing your fingers and denying it, going through the motions only, but actually believe it from the heart too. Paul is so bold as to say this is a sin against Jesus. It's sinning against my neighbor. Therefore, it's sitting against Jesus. And he introduces a beautiful phrase that we should consider every fellow Christian a brother for whom Christ died. A beautiful way of saying the universal atonement. We, we could also extend that to those outside the church. But for those we know as fellow confessing Christians, how much more intimate is this that Christ died for them? That's how far the Lord was willing to go to rescue them. Certainly, we can set aside something so small as a particular kind of food. Well, we've explained this text. How do you apply it to what we face today, our disagreements in the church? I think that's very difficult. I'll underscore maybe this caution that comes out of Paul's speaking here. We should be wary of the attitude that we can get sometimes that goes halfway in its piety. So my mind and my heart know everything, but my mouth and my body don't need to act in accordance with what my mind knows and believes so that others would see my good works and praise the Father in heaven or see my faith being expressed. This usually happens when we shortcut to the answers, I think, and then the answers actually excuse maybe our convenience or our inattention. I think we usually arrive at the kind of knowledge Paul is poking fun at here after the fact as a way of defending our actions without a whole lot of thought. What is clear from Paul's instruction here, especially if we bring in all of 1 Corinthians, is that explanation is always needed in the church and frequently, that we would know what we're doing and why, that we would know what's in our heart and our minds, as well as the actions that we're taking, whether it's a man-made ceremony or an action in the world or a way of living, that we would know the reasons and consider what it, the appearances are. This is by no means here a blanket endorsement for superstition or that you can be a weak, ignorant conscience and stay there your whole life. That's not actually the goal. But ultimately, even though Paul talks about we all have knowledge, he seems to be quoting them and somewhat ironically. Actually, the Corinthians are not proving themselves to have great knowledge because true knowledge, that is faith in Christ Jesus, a knowledge of his teaching and his scriptures, the words that he speaks, that leads to the correlative action that belongs with it, which is love, love of God, love of our neighbor. It doesn't lead to this kind of carelessness that is mixed with selfishness that would say, look, I know this is nothing, so it's no big deal, and I'll just go ahead regardless of what somebody else viewing me, a fellow brother in Christ for whom he died, might think of it. We will get into the gradual in the verse and then the gospel reading in Mark chapter 1 as we look forward to the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany with Pastor Sean Denzer.
Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Come join LCMS Worship for the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th, 2024, at Concordia University, Nebraska. We'll gather under the theme, The Songs of Deliverance, and focus on the Psalms together. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. Have you ever wanted a resource to share with first-time visitors of your congregation to help them understand why we worship the way we worship, why your church gathers the way they gather to receive our Lord's gifts? Pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, which is The Divine Service, A User's Guide. To order a copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website to learn more, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the Three-year lectionary, Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, is our guest. Sean, what are the gradual and verse for the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany? Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Alleluia, they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority. So our Lord's steadfast love toward us is the character of our God. Its activity is what saves us. It's also what elicits saving faith from us. And then a saving faith that doesn't ignore my brother and what might be scandalous to him, but that loves him as well and takes him into account. And this whole gradual, as with the season of Epiphany, is kind of in the presence of the Gentiles, calling on them to worship the true God. So it's kind of fitting after this discussion of many who are still confused in their knowledge and worshiping from the heart false idols. Our verse then highlights kind of the most important part of our gospel, which is the word of Jesus is unique. And everyone recognizes it. His word and his teaching has an authority to it. And the authority is that he is sent from God. So we began Epiphany hearing about the baptism of Jesus, his christening, 
his anointing to be the Holy One of God. Here we're going to see that his teaching comes with that authority, the authority of the Christ and the authority of the one who has come to lay down his life for his own people. So that gospel reading is Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So we should say even before we hear about this marvelous miracle of casting out a demon, Jesus' teaching is already recognized there in the synagogue as being different, as being a teaching with authority in contrast to the scribes who don't teach with authority. Why is that? Well, it's still the case today that the Jews who have any kind of orthodox religion are much more concerned with citing the rabbis and uh, the other writings than they are with citing the Torah itself. So they claim to be the students of Moses, and yet they're really students of the accumulations around Moses. And worst of all, they're not students of Moses looking for the one who's going to come from God, the Christ, to whom they should listen above all, but they're students of Moses as an end to himself. This lack of authority in teaching can still happen today, frankly. There's often an obsession that we have with the opinion of others, and there's also the obsession that we have with uh, celebrity, and then there's a tendency that we can have to collect everyone else's opinions and repeat them as if that's sufficient. It's not a problem to cite your sources and to give credit where it's due in your papers, of course, but this is often done in the public teaching setting to give authority as a cover, to make an impression on others that actually a lot of other people agree with me, therefore I'm right, and that's the important part. In other words, to make a show of power, a show of authority. That's not what Jesus is doing here at all. He's coming honestly as one who stood in the counsel of the Lord, quite uniquely that he's the Son of God. Therefore, he adds to it his miracles as well. So Christ works together with his teaching, his miracles. This is uh, to testify that he is indeed the Son of God and from God. But uh, we have a unique testament of that here because the demon who comes to Jesus in that man actually confesses Jesus. This is an astonishing thing. Hopefully we haven't forgotten what James teaches, that the demons know that there is one God, the demons even know who Jesus is, and they shudder at the thought. When James is explaining that, he's wanting us to have faith that is active in love, that is evident, and is not just kind of idle faith that stays in our mind. I think it's a fine pairing with our epistle reading, actually. 
I want us to take the other tack for a moment and realize that the demons know exactly who Jesus is and they shudder at the thought. This is a very good message for us who are afflicted by them. It's everything we prayed in our collect today that uh, he is the Lord over the demons. He's the one who's able to protect us from dangers and temptations. This is why we listen to Jesus, not only because he is the big deal sent from God, uh, just, just to that end, but also because he is sent from God for a purpose, purpose to be our redeemer. And therefore, this is what James is getting at as well, that not only should we just know the fact that Jesus is, or that he is the Holy One of God, but that we would trust in him, that we would devote ourselves to him with true faith and in just the way that uh, idols can also be the object of faith for those who believe in them instead. Maybe it's a good question to ask, why doesn't Jesus seem to want the demons to tell about him? If he's come to be recognized, if he's come to be that prophet that Moses foretold to whom everyone has to listen, why wouldn't Jesus want all the people to help him, even if they're against him, if they acknowledge who he is rightly? Isn't that a win? Well, actually, the Lord wants his fame to spread among people, not just dispassionately, if we can borrow from the epistle, not just in bare historical knowledge only. There's lots of people who still accidentally or intentionally count their days in the year of our Lord 2024, they know the facts of the story of Jesus in his life. They even believe he was a real person. Maybe they even believe he's a real prophet. But if they don't take it to heart that everything he did was for me, if they don't believe what the scriptures say and recognize that uh, actually I want to listen to him and believe in him because he's the son of God and he's my mediator, then they're missing the whole point. Jesus wants that kind of faith and knowledge of him to spread. And that's why he rebukes the demons. They're not the ones to tell that because they never believe in him as a savior and a mediator. Likewise, even uh, the spread of his fame, which is how our gospel ends today, Jesus curtails because he doesn't want to be known only as a miracle worker. He doesn't want to be known only as a king who might use his power and authority on earth but he wants to be known and glorified chiefly in his death and in his resurrection, by which he is the true mediator, surpassing even Moses, to redeem us, to give us and show his steadfast love and mercy that endures forever. So the point of Jesus is not simply to spread his fame. Likewise, the miracles are to testify to him, not just so that people will pay attention, but so that they will come to find life in him, the one who gives his life as a ransom for many. With only a minute here, what would you say about a couple of the hymns that we could be singing this coming Sunday? So the hymn of the day is 842, Son of God, Eternal Savior. This hymn, I think when you sing it and look at it, is much more focused on the social gospel. It originally had some extra standards that really pointed it in that direction, that we want to be working to improve society. I think it was chosen, however, because of this repeated opening sentence that he's the son of God, the eternal savior, the word made flesh among us to hollow and honor our human race. We see that here, especially as he saves this man from the demon uh, without doing him any harm. And I have to commend the people who chose it for that reason and who sing it in this way to put the focus not on us and what we're doing, 
with the put the focus on Christ and what he is doing. I think another hymn that we could uh, I could recommend for this day is especially 533 in Lutheran service book Jesus has come and brings pleasure. It's a strong epiphany hymn about the two natures of Christ already, but it speaks also about the voice of his power, his thunder, same kind of thunder we heard on Mount Sinai, but here coming to disarm Satan's kingdom as we certainly see him doing as he casts out this demon. And the final stanza is an appeal to trust in him, to own him as true Lord, just as Moses commended to us. Let's listen to him and give Christ our attention, since he's our true mediator. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you very much. You're very welcome. In Hour 2 of Issues, etc., on this Monday, January the 22nd, Dr. Lloyd Holm joins us. We're going to talk about the stockpiling of abortion pills. Then we'll discuss Christians, gay friends, and same-sex weddings with Pastor Brian Barlow. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. In a world awash with all sorts of information, opinions, and ideas, there is still a place where God's Word is the central and only focus. Messiah Lutheran Church, 801 North Madison, Lebanon, Illinois. At 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, God's people gather there to listen to Him. There you will find His words of law and gospel, and of course, our Lord's Holy Supper. Bible classes focus on the Bible and the Lutheran confessions. Come, listen, believe, and live, and check out our website at messiahlebanon.org. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, invites you to an open house from 1 to 3 on Sunday afternoon, February 4th. Take a tour, visit with faculty and administration, and find out more about financial assistance and scholarships. For more information, visit the Facebook page for Metro East Lutheran High School or call 618-656-0043. Open house at Metro East Lutheran High School, Edwardsville, Illinois, Sunday afternoon, February 4th.